Hi, I'm Rachel Morris and this is episode five of You Are Not A Frog. How to have a really interesting and diverse career. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors and other busy people who want to thrive rather than just survive. Now, working as a doctor is as demanding as it is rewarding and navigating the high stress culture at work leaves many of us feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. You may feel like a frog in boiling water. Things have heated up so slowly that you didn't notice the extra long days becoming the norm. You may feel trapped and that you have no control over what is happening. Let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices, stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog and that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more choices than you think you do. There are simple changes that you can make which will make a huge difference to your stress levels and help you enjoy life again. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris, GP turned executive coach and specialist in resilience at work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this so that together we can take back control to survive and really thrive in our work and lives. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Adam Harrison, Vice Chair of Knotts LMC, dual qualified GP and lawyer with his hands in many pies. We chat about how to keep up your interest in your work, how to put yourself out there and why you've just got to try new things out. I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. Adam Harrison, who's had a really interesting career. He's dual qualified in medicine and law. He's a portfolio GP, a medical legal expert, and he's also vice chair from Nottingham LMC. Adam, what else do you do apart from all of that? Hi, Rachel. So I'm medical lead at the local urgent care centre in Nottingham, which mainly involves supervising the nurse and paramedic clinicians there. I'm an out-of-hours GP. I teach medical students there, supervise GP registrars in the out-of-hours, and I'm a GP appraiser. And I do a few things for the LMC other than the vice chair thing. So I've recently been doing some GP portfolio career coaching for the LMC. Brilliant. So a really diverse career. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to get Adam on the podcast, because, you know, I really strongly believe that one of the ways to survive and thrive as a doctor is to do other stuff as well. So do different stuff. Don't always do the same stuff. So Adam, you've had quite an interesting and very career. Tell us how it all started and what your career journey has been. Gosh, it's quite a long, torturous and perhaps painful journey to talk about. But uh... <laughs> Quick summary then. <laughs> I qualified in 2000 and I think I was always interested in the medical legal interface because even then I was asking one of my consultants about, do you know anyone that went from medicine into law? But I carried on down the traditional route, I think mainly because I couldn't even afford to pay for the law conversion at that stage. I was so indebted to the banks and so on after qualifying in London. So yeah, I worked as a hospital doctor for about six years and then started my GP training, did that for a couple of years. And It was probably towards the tail end of my GP training that I realised that it wasn't really for me because I started looking on the medical defence organisation's websites for opportunities to become a medical legal advisor and at what stage you could transfer across into that. So I knew something wasn't quite right by that stage. So I finished my GP VTS in 2008 and I locum for about a year and started working for the MDU as a medical legal advisor in the autumn of 2009. Did you have to do a law degree to be able to do that or did you do training on the job? So at that time, and I don't think it's changed particularly, you didn't have to have any legal qualifications to work for one of the defence organisations, but you did have to have postgraduate medical qualifications. So I had my MRCGP 
and they didn't tend to even shortlist anyone, certainly for the MDU didn't, who hadn't got a postgrad medical qualification. They then put you through an LLM, you know, medical law and ethics LLM, if you wanted to. It changed after where they wanted you to become a member of the Faculty of Medical Law and Medicine or something like that. And they would either pay for you to do that or do your LLM. But now I think because there are more doctors who are wanting to leave clinical practice, it might be a bit more competitive. There might be some who are applying who've already got their LLM, for example. Remind us what LLM is. Masters in law, which if you do a medical law LLM, then you have a medical law or legal background. But there were people I did start doing one and there are people like pharmacists and things like that who did Mm -hmm. them as well. So that's interesting. When you said you knew something wasn't quite right, what was it that wasn't quite right? At the time, I was working in quite a gritty, busy inner city practice in quite a socially deprived area. I felt very supported by my trainer, but the trainees there had to do their share of the duty doctor days and so on. And visits kind of went more to the trainees. You had to get your experience up, didn't you? You've got to get your numbers up. You've got to see these patients. So when you come out the other end, be confident and capable. But it felt like a lot to me. And perhaps it was the demographic. I felt the demands of the patients quite a lot personally. So that's when I obviously started looking around, thinking, what am I interested in? Oh, yeah, a couple of times over the years up until then, I'd thought about medical law. And I thought, what can I do? I don't have a legal degree or anything I don't know if I can afford the time or money to do a legal qualification at the moment so perhaps working for one of the defence organisations would be the next best thing. And at that point did you expect to continue as a doctor as well or were you looking for an entire career change to something different? It's funny you should say that actually because I was hoping that I could carry on a day a week in practice. I knew there were people at the MDU who were doing that but it would appear that they had negotiated their contracts some years before and they were able to maintain that day in practice. And I thought it was a bit ironic that they marketed themselves as doctors for doctors, but then when you went to work for them, they expected you to completely relinquish all your clinical practice and work solely for them. And I don't think I was ever really comfortable with that. I think that was probably one of the things that led me to leave the MDU full-time after a year and I went down to just being a telephone advisor for them, like Mm -hmm. one session a week. Because it got to that point where I was at a junction whereby I either carry on with the MDU and lose my license to practice. And I think the thing that really freaked me out actually was the thought that I might not be able to ever write a prescription again. It was really odd. I just thought, what's the thing that defines me as a doctor? Mm. And it's that legal power to do prescriptions. And I thought, I'm just going to lose these powers that I've worked all these years to get. It was really odd. So I thought, well, I think I'll just go back into clinical practice and the locum and do my legal training instead. And then the rest is history, so they yeah, say. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But it's interesting now that you're actually doing a lot of clinical work, but as well as doing the other stuff as well. So was it when you knew that something wasn't quite right, that it wasn't that you didn't want to do the clinical stuff, it's just that you needed something else to keep your interest up and to help you do the clinical stuff well because you were using other skills and other bits of your brain in the other job? I think you're right. In retrospect, I can imagine the scene sitting in my room at the practice looking on the MPS website it was I was looking at, thinking, how can I get out of this situation that I'm currently in? So yeah, I thought that working for a medical defence organisation was going to be a panacea for me. It was going to 
scratch that itch I had to do some more legal work while maintaining my clinical interest because obviously some of the cases would arise out of clinical competence issues so I thought I'd be able to use my medical expertise but actually it didn't really turn out like that they had medical experts to do that medical side of thing and they had legal experts to take things on when the cases became interesting so I felt I was in that sort of no man's land of not really being clinical and not being legal and the role didn't satisfy me in the way that I thought it would but I think I did miss clinical practice I was afraid of the thought of losing my skills, becoming de-skilled. And actually, I did miss patients as well, despite it seeming to be an initial push away from medicine because of the patient demands. So you wanted to do something that kept up the patient contact, allowed you to write prescriptions and actually work as a doctor, but yet still doing other stuff. I mean, what value does doing other things bring, do you think? I guess, obviously, doing the medical side enables you to keep those skills going and maintain those clinical skills and privileges that you have as a doctor. And I don't just mean the legal privileges of prescription writing, but the privileges of actually speaking to people and going into a person's inner sanctum, you know, having that kind of really quite personal and intimate relationship with patients where they open up to you. And I I think I did actually miss that because I do value that side of any job that I have, really. So it enabled that, but also I didn't have to do that full time. It gave me that freedom to be able to go and explore other things and do other things. And I ended up doing some things that were medico-legally related anyway. So Adam, you know, a lot of our colleagues in general practice or in secondary care are feeling really quite stressed at the moment on the edge of burnout. Do you think that diversifying and doing different stuff can help at all with this sort of feeling of stress and overwhelm? Definitely. I mean, some doctors have an even busier and fuller portfolio career than I do, and they work probably 10 sessions or even more a week. But because they do lots of different things, they don't feel tired, they don't feel burnt out, they don't feel stressed. It's really refreshing in my situation, going from a a session at the urgent care centre to going to an LMC meeting and representing them and then going to do a bit of clinical stuff in out of hours and then coaching some GPs who want to develop portfolio careers you know, it doesn't feel onerous at all. So from my own experience and knowing other doctors who who do even more than I do in their portfolios, it's a lot less stressful, a lot less tiring, a lot less prone to burning out, I think, than if you do the same thing day in, day out, all day, five days a week. Why is that, do you think? For me, it's the variety. I'm constantly in different venues interacting with different people and so there isn't the time to get bored and get stale and you know if you're working somewhere full-time you can get embroiled in the politics of things and there can be tensions between if you're say a full-time GP partner or if you're a consultant I know my wife is a specialist and there are tensions you know within the consultant's team just like there are with GP partners and so on so you know, you're going to the same place every day, meeting the same people, and you're fed up, you know, tempers are going to fray and things like that. There simply isn't the opportunity for that to happen if you're constantly peripatetic like I am. So one thing that I notice doing other stuff apart from clinical work is that I get to use different parts of my brain. So I maybe get to use the creative side of my brain a little bit more when I'm doing the sort of resilience work than I do if I was sort of sat seeing patients. What other skills and things have you had to develop in these different roles that you've got that you wouldn't necessarily use if you were just seeing patients eight to eight every day? 
So if I were, uh, I guess you're talking about like a salaried GP rather than a partner, because obviously GP partners have that kind of management side to their job as well, don't they? Although they don't often get given the time to, to do that properly. But I've been an assistant medical director and uh, I'm a medical lead. And so I get to get involved in recruitment and disciplinary things, which interests me because I'm the legal side of my brain. You know, I get to meet lots of different people that I wouldn't get to meet as a GP just seeing patients. I truly do get to be part of multidisciplinary time and I have the time and leisure to be able to do that properly. And so I'm getting to communicate with lots of different people, which I really enjoy. I think the problem solving aspect of things is totally different. So if I'm going to a meeting for the LMC and representing them, I use a lot of soft skills that I wouldn't use in general practice, perhaps, you know, some of it is transferable. You know, you're kind of sitting at a meeting with lots of different stakeholders and you're sizing people up and you're looking for nonverbal cues and things like this, like you would as a GP. But you're using your diplomatic skills that you're acquiring and honing as part of a medical political organisation, which you certainly wouldn't if you were working in practice. I'm getting to do a lot more teaching in my portfolio, which if I were a local GP, I probably wouldn't get medical students given to sit with me or registrars to supervise, but I do get that in out of hours. So I get to use my teaching skills that I would only ordinarily use on patients, which is different. Obviously, as you know, we're teaching patients all the time, but it's a different thing, isn't it, when you're teaching a fellow clinician. I think with my appraisal role, my GP appraisal role as well, I see myself a lot more in a sort of coaching capacity. There's a lot of people who are really, as you say, quite low and fed up at the moment and actually even with the appraisal process itself, but I use it as an opportunity to really kind of buoy them up and celebrate their successes and celebrate their achievements and find out where they want to go and see if there are any ways that I can help them get there. Because of all the jobs I've had over the years, I've got a lot of contacts. So I can often signpost people to colleagues or to organisations that can kind of help them explore their interests. And that's another thing is I am a bit of a networker. I'm on LinkedIn quite a lot and I'm learning a lot about LinkedIn. In fact, I even wrote a presentation about it. I do bits and bobs of teaching for LMCs about LinkedIn for doctors because doctors are just really bad at using LinkedIn, to be fair. (laughs) It's a really underused and powerful resource, I think, that doctors could use if they were interested to get into other things. So I'm using these social media skills and technical skills that I wouldn't use in practice as well. So, I mean, I probably haven't mentioned everything, but I think there's a few things there that I wouldn't get to use as a GP. So I think that LinkedIn piece is really interesting to me because I think a lot of GPs who are wanting to diversify, do something different, are saying to me, well, Rachel, I'd love to do that, but nothing's being advertised or I'm looking for stuff and I don't really know where to start. And I'd really love to do some teaching, but I don't know what to do. And I'll say, well, have you gone to speak to so-and-so? Oh, oh, can I do that? So it's this idea of networking and actually putting out feelers and talking to people. And LinkedIn is a brilliant way of doing that. What sort of advice would you give to GPs in that situation who are saying, well, I just don't know where to start? I think it comes down to your own personal motivation levels and how much initiative you have. You know, I was called to the bar in 2014. I didn't achieve a pupillage which is probably a blessing now I look back on that. I did kind of take stock and think, okay, so right, I'm a doctor, I'm a GP, I've done this law thing, I've gone back to locoming, but I really want to use some of my legal knowledge and legal skills and I have this bar qualification, what am I going to do? So I thought, okay, I've heard of the local medical committee, I understand that they'll represent doctors at hearings and things like that. So 
maybe the uh, LMC can use my skills as an advocate for their doctors at local tribunals, you know, local NHS England tribunals and so on. So I think what made it for me is I approached the chief exec of, of Knott's LMC at the time, and he was really keen on the idea of me giving them medical legal advice as a committee, but also potentially representing doctors for them as well. And he co-opted me onto the committee and that was it really. I thought, wow, so you can send someone an email and if they're kind, they will reply to you. I got a bit disenchanted with the legal world in that probably you got a response from about one in 10 medical legal barristers. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. So this was great and he wanted to meet me and uh, it really boosted my confidence and there was sort of no stopping me there. And I approached NHS England because I'd heard that you could be a case investigator and look into allegations of underperformance among GPs for NHS England. I thought, well, that sounds quite medical legal. So I contacted NHS England and again, I was taken on to do that. I had to know about the LMC and I had to know about NHS England doing these things. But I knew that through colleagues that I spoke to in my out of hours job. So I think the first thing is just speak to as many of your immediate GP colleagues as you can, because you'll often find that they do other bits and bobs outside of their practice. And that's how I heard about being a case investigator. And I wouldn't have thought of it otherwise. I wouldn't have even known about it. When you realise that you can approach these organisations and they are interested in keen people, and it doesn't have to be medical legal, it can be anything, you know, but honestly, if you've got a lot of enthusiasm and you're very positive, because that's one of the recurring things people say to me that, you know, you're very smiley, you're very positive, you're very keen, probably quite irritating to some people, but anyway. (laughs) But actually, it's unusual for them to get really enthusiastic, keen people approaching them Mm -hmm. saying, what opportunities do you have? I really want to get involved in ABC. So do that. And now there's so much more stuff out there than even there was in 2014 when I was exploring these things myself. You know, you've got websites like Medic Footprints and things like that, haven't you, in Alternative Medical Careers, Diversify. And all. if you're a GP, a lot of the LMC websites have really latched onto this. And they've got portfolio career opportunities on their websites, well-being stuff. So there's a lot more out there now. So if you can do the research online, speak to your immediate colleagues, and then hopefully get signposted to people like me. And I speak to a lot of people, you know, just in my own time and help people kind of get a foot in the door in places, connect people up. We were connected up by a mutual friend of ours and we've helped each other. And that's how it is, isn't it? It's become sort of exponential, really. Look out online and speak to your colleagues. And LinkedIn, as you say, LinkedIn is just formidable, isn't it, really? And if people look me up on LinkedIn, Dr. Adam Harrison, they'll see my article that I've written about 10 top tips to create a good LinkedIn profile. Oh, brilliant. Um, That will help. But they can just message me and I'm happy to advise as well. And LinkedIn is great for seeking out like-minded people and then sort of messaging them. And I think it's all about being proactive, isn't it? Definitely. I think as GPs, we've never, ever had to sell ourselves. 
really because well I don't know about you but I've never really had to apply for jobs I've just sort of yeah. people have just offered them to me yeah but when I decided to do a bit of a career change I spent a long time just talking to anybody I could talk to in whatever career just saying can I buy you a coffee can I just pick your brains about what you do and, and what it's like and invariably you'd go and you'd have a coffee and you'd chat and you're not trying to say oh look at me do you want to employ me you're just trying to think are they doing something that I'm interested in or is there some synergy between us and then guaranteed yeah. at the end of it, they go, oh, you know what? You should speak to so-and-so because that would be really interesting. Yeah. But I think GPs, we worry that we've got to go and market ourselves. And actually, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is finding out, seeing if there's in some way that we can be helpful to someone. And often just by doing that, you'll hear about opportunities that would never have been advertised. Yeah. And then people sort of create jobs around what they think you can do. And I think you're right. So good people are really difficult to come by in lots of areas, aren't they? Yeah. And they give you some examples of the power of LinkedIn. You know, I've had people approach me to meet with me, like the medical director for Virgin Care took me out for lunch. There was a guy who's a neurophysiologist who set up a, a company and he wanted some doctors involved, wanted me to be the medical director. He took me for lunch as well. That was really nice. I've had a Chinese gentleman who wanted me to help him set up GP training in Beijing. And when I go to Darwin, I'm going to be touching base with him and perhaps going to visit him in China. There's just these random things will come along if you get out there. And, you know, with LinkedIn, you do need to maintain your profile and keep posting things and liking things and putting comments and, and doing that on a weekly basis. But it's not too intrusive if you ration your time appropriately. So. If people are listening to this and thinking, oh, I've no idea about social media, I don't know what to do for LinkedIn, there are things that you can do where you are locally. So say if you think to yourself, actually, I'm working as a portfolio doctor or even, even a partner and I want to do something different. What am I interested in? Or, you know, actually, I am quite interested in mental health. Maybe I could go and have a coffee with the local mental health consultant with the trust and just say, actually, how are we connecting as practices? Can I just find out a little bit more about what you guys are doing? There's lots of different people you can plug into locally. And the LMC know lots of people. The CCG obviously have lots of people working there. And you can always just contact the lead for the CCG because they have leads in obviously all the different specialties. Yeah. And just go and have a chat or go and chat to the training programs director or the university department that's doing teaching or there's loads of charities around. You know, so it's just really working out what am I interested in? Yeah. And actually, I ask people to say, what do I enjoy doing as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we were doing our GP portfolio careers coaching, you know, we'd always find out what people's skills were and what people's interests were and then try and marry them and match them up for opportunities that we knew about or try and create opportunities for them. But you're right, if you're proactive, you can source these opportunities for yourself quite easily, really. There's a lot of value to be had from meeting up with the medical director of a mental health trust and not just in the, oh, can I get a session a week as a psychiatry associate specialist or something like that, or what opportunities do they have for me on the clinical governance board or something like that. But these people... They're at this level for a reason. They're usually very special people with really wide interests and they will potentially signpost you into all sorts of directions that you didn't know about and you didn't even think you were interested in. You know, I probably have become interested in coaching because when I left NHS England, I had a parting gift of four sessions of coaching. And actually, after 20 months of working for them that's the best thing they ever did for me <laughs> he's, he's, he's paid for me to have four sessions of coaching and I had it 
with Dr. Fiona Day, who's fantastic. And it really just catapulted me into this sort of realm of I'm a complete coaching convert now. I didn't even know that I had that interest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll meet people who are fascinating and Actually, you know, without kind of uh, sounding a bit sycophantic, you know, people like yourself, you're so well read, you know, and going on one of your courses, obviously I've been on the Shapes course and all the kind of references and bibliography you put at the end of it. There's some fascinating stuff there and you just think, these people are amazing. How do they find the time to do all this, read all this stuff as well? You know, we are capable of a lot more than we think we are. And there are people out there who are very special and can really help you, even if you just meet them for coffee. It's interesting you say that, you know, these people who've really well read. That was one of the things that really spurred me to do my career change, because I thought to myself, I'm not really keeping up to date so well here. You know, I'm not really reading all the latest guidelines about hypertension and things like that. I thought, but I'm reading all the time. And it just dawned on me, I'm reading what I'm interested in. So I'm reading all this stuff on resilience and stress and burnout and how you prevent it and how we live a good life. That's what I'm interested in. So then I started looking for the career in in what I was truly interested in, what I truly enjoyed, rather than trying to sort of fit a round peg into a square hole. So I think the first thing I would say to people who are thinking of diversifying is, what do you love doing? What are you passionate about? Or even if you're not necessarily deathly passionate about something, you can develop that passion. Just what are you interested in? Because I think going off and doing a job is something that really doesn't float your boat and you're really not interested in. And that, again, is quite a good way to just burn out very quickly. Agreed. And I think a lot of medics kind of get onto that career conveyor belt, don't you? And you think that's all you can do. I went to medical school. I have to work as a doctor. We live to our means. You get used to an income. You get used to kind of having the security of paid annual leave and a pension and all that sort of stuff. It's really frightening to even dip your toe in the waters outside of medicine for some people. But there are good livings to be had in other areas that you might feel passionate about as well. And I think the more inspired you are, the more successful you'll be. You know, and also it's you can't put a price on your free time, can you? You know, as long as you can pay your bills and you can have a decent house and a decent car and a holiday and your kids are, have got what they need. Honestly, what more do you need than that? Why do you need to kind of work all the hours in the world and earn loads and loads of money? you know, happiness and health are the new wealth, aren't they? Mm. Uh, I think in some ways, maybe not politically, but in some ways we're entering a bit of an age of Aquarius. And I think certainly among medics, there's a bit of an awakening. And that is great. It's good to see. I think people feel trapped. And I know certainly I did because I thought to myself, well, I can't do anything but general practice. I mean, obviously I had my teaching job at the university, so I knew I could educate and do medical education. But outside of that, I thought, well, I have no other skills. And actually it was through coaching that I learned actually what a lot of transferable skills you do have as a doctor. I mean, you, you have this ability to communicate with people for a start built up over the years and that is massive and you have massive credibility in any area in which you go into because of your background and the scientific background the fact you can understand science and then translate that science for other people is one of the skills that I draw on a lot but it was really coaching that helped me and I know you've become very interested in coaching recently as well how can you see coaching helping people in diversifying their careers Recently, one of my colleagues put something on Twitter and it was just a very concise way of explaining what coaching is. A coach sort of facilitates getting you from where you are to where you want to be in a much quicker time. 
So you might think, I've got a long-term plan to do this. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how long it's going to take me. How am I going to get there? What do I need to do? Oh, in the meantime, I'm going to be stuck in this clinical job that I don't like for the next 10 years. And that can make you feel a bit negative and spiral a little bit as well and make things even more difficult to achieve. A coach will help you turn your goals into reality in a lot quicker time. It's just a really efficient way of getting to be where you want to be and often making you realize what you do or don't want to do or want to be. Coaches don't give you the answers. All of the answers are within yourself. The resources are within the coachee. And that's the fantastic thing about it. So people do know really how to do what they need to do. It's just plucking it out of them, really. Holding a mirror up to them and saying, actually, you do know. This is what you've just told me. So let's think of some ways that you can get there from A to B a lot quicker. Mm. And it's just so powerful. You know, when you see it in action, it's just so inspiring. And you go on these coaching courses and you hear the anecdotes of some of these coaches. And I think the thing I really like is quite a few of them do voluntary work with schools as well. Quite a few of them. Some of the stories that you hear about these kids, they've actually made a massive impact on their life. Mm. You know, coaching can be, I sound a bit kind of gospel here, really life-changing so I kind of think actually if I can coach doctors and help them with burnout or help them when they're in difficulty with the GMC or help healthcare leaders I can actually positively affect someone's life Mm. whereas I'm sitting in practice and I'm giving advice about viral sore throats and giving some amoxicillin for a chest infection then I might be making an impact on someone's life for a few days but I'm not actually making an impact on their whole life so I'd recommend anyone have a look into it. I think everyone could benefit from it, even if they don't think they could. I think they could. I think there's a myth, isn't it, that you have to be broken or experiencing massive problems to get a coach. But I always say, actually, you know, look at the top tennis players. You will always have a coach. And if you look at any of our leaders, anyone who's a CEO in a decent company will have a leadership coach to help them on. And I know I certainly got further in six months than I would have done in a couple of years by having coaching in terms of helping me with a career change. And certainly with my coaching clients, you just see light bulbs coming on, don't you? Yeah, and that, yeah. Oh, that's why I'm feeling like that. And that path I was thinking there, that's why that's not right for me. So this is what I need to do. Yeah, well, I, yeah. now I've realised that. I know exactly how to get there. And this, yeah, yeah. this is what I need to do. So it's yeah. full scene. It's really exciting. That. I guess the yeah. problem with coaching is, A, it's quite expensive. Yeah. And B, you have to invest quite a lot of time in it yourself, don't you? Yeah. So when I coach people, it's an hour minimum, two hours maximum. And then they've got a load of actions. They've got a load of things they've actually got to go on and do. So it's quite an investment, both in financial terms and time terms. But I think in terms of value for money, it's incredibly, incredibly valuable. It is because you're right. At the time, it seems like quite a lot. But if you put that into the context of the rest of your life it's a few months of a bit of hard work isn't it to get you somewhere that you want to be an awful lot quicker and in a way you almost can't put a price on that really i don't expect everyone to be a complete convert to it and want to take it up themselves but whatever they want to do in life i think a little bit of coaching could help them i mean i've seen what 10 minutes can do it can be quite phenomenal well maybe we should do a live coaching session on the podcast one time (laughs) really happy to do that yeah (laughs) so Alan just to finish off what advice would you give to someone who's sort of feeling a little bit trapped a little bit stuck in their work thinks actually they want to keep working but they'd like to diversify a little bit you know what three pieces of advice would you give to them I guess the first thing is they realize that they do want to do 
something different and hopefully they've got the motivation because you know you can get really stuck in a rut can't you and you can be in the doldrums in that kind of scenario that you've described so actually to realize that you want to change and you've got to change and being open to change they're the very first step you know we know that there are lots of patients that we've advised about lifestyle things and they have to be ready otherwise it's not going to happen so have a think about as you said what your skills and interests are and where you might want to be, where you might want to get to, what your sort of timeframes are. Then I would start doing your research into what things are there locally that I can access, who can I speak to, do that kind of speaking to your immediate colleagues as well. Thirdly, get yourself onto LinkedIn and social media and get a profile and start building up your networks and exploring those areas of interest online. And you will find that people will come to you if you portray yourself in the right way enthusiastically positively there are some kind people out there who will help you so do your research speak to immediate colleagues and find out what opportunities there are locally be proactive about that and use social media i think are probably my three tips brilliant and i would also add to that if you can get some coaching just I think it's such a powerful way of transforming and if you're an extrovert like me I need to sort of speak out loud to know what I'm thinking yeah so it's really helpful Adam if people want to contact you or find out more about you where can they go email adam.harrison3 the number three at nhs.net linkedin just dr adam harrison I'm on twitter I've got a few accounts on Twitter. <laughs> I've got a coaching one. It's a future leadership coach. But my sort of more personal one is AMH underscore 1975. And people can contact me through that. And then I'll give them my mobile number and arrange to chat to people. But very happy for people to come to me and get further advice. Happy to Great. provide that advice. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's really great to talk to you and we'll definitely get you back. I think there's lots more to talk about. And the thing I'm really interested in that we didn't go into is this new wealth being sort of health and happiness and how we need to maximise that in our lives instead. Thanks a lot. We'll catch up soon, hopefully. Yeah, thanks so much. Cheers, Rachel. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe to the podcast and also please rate it on iTunes so that other people can find it too. Do follow me on Twitter at Dr. Rachel Morris and you can find out more about the face-to-face and online courses which I run on the youarenotafrog.co.uk website. Bye for now.